a Bible. If you don't have one, you can grab one in the seat back in front of you. And go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 20. We have a lot to cover this morning. Somebody might want to go across the street and warn them we're going to go a little bit long. That's all right, because we have a ton to get to. I'm really excited about this. Um, In John 19, where we ended up, we saw Jesus' disciples in a really broken place. They had just witnessed their rabbi, whom they believed was God's Messiah, arrested, tortured, and ultimately murdered for, you know, his, his public ministry. And people were saying, well, he was trying to usurp Rome. And so they were broken. And, and I can, as chapter 19 ends, we see them huddled in a little room, hiding out from the, Rome, or the, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, as everybody is celebrating the Passover festival, and I'm sure that songs are just resounding along the stone streets of Jerusalem, the disciples are huddled in this little room, hiding for fear that they too are going to be arrested. They too might be killed for having followed Jesus. And I can only begin to imagine what was going through their minds that whole long Passover Saturday, as they're realizing he's gone. Jesus is dead. We saw his body. We saw the blood and the water spilling from his... We know he's not coming back. And there's a part of them that are just broken because they had anticipated that he was God's anointed redeemer, the one who would ultimately reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation in the world. They believed he would be king of the Jews. And they believed that that meant that he would throw off the yoke of Rome and that he would reestablish Israel and he would be king. And therefore they would be alongside of him in his reign. On the flip side, I'm sure that there was probably a little bit of confusion amongst them because of some of the things that Jesus had said just prior to him being arrested. Things like, in a little while you're not going to see me anymore, but then you will see me. And while the rest of the world celebrates, you guys are going to weep and mourn, but take heart because your grief will turn to joy. He had also mentioned that it was actually good for them that he was going to go away because in his place would come the Holy Spirit and somehow that was supposed to be better for them. And so here they sit all long Saturday hiding for fear that they're going to be arrested and just processing all of the painful things that have been said. Um, and then we come to John chapter 20. It is now Sunday morning, really, really early. The sun hasn't even risen yet. And we read about a woman, in particular, Mary of Magdalene. A woman who, in one of the other Gospels, mentioned that Jesus had actually cast some seven demons out of her. So this is a woman who has experienced the power that Jesus had within him, the power of life transformation. She's one of his followers, and she heads to the tomb where I'm sure she wants to mourn and grieve some more, just near him. And so we read in John chapter 20, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, I should mention that in other Gospels, there are other women that go with Mary. She's not walking alone. Um, Also that there are guards that were stationed around the tomb, but because of what had happened, those guards had fled. There's some details that John chooses not to include because, quite honestly, for him, they're not as central as the focus. Am I 
coming apart. Clint, fix me, please. I don't know. All right, I'm just going to keep reading. All right. This might be awkward. So, <laughs> Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Whoa. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> Thank you. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Who is, he, who is that referring to? John, the author of this gospel, likes to refer to himself as the one Jesus loved. Okay. And, and she said, they've taken our Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Something that really strikes me as I read through this chapter is that they had absolutely no idea that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. I'm going to pause for just a moment. You got that? I'm sorry. All right, Mandy, my bad. All right, free free night of babysitting for Andy and Mandy at another date. Holy moly. Okay, so at this point, they had absolutely no idea that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. It completely takes them by surprise. Read in verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's very important, John wants you to know, that he is faster than Peter at a foot race. That's important. Wow. So he, when John gets there, he bent over and looked into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, and he went straight into the tomb because Peter's just like, whatever, you know, the, the sanctity of a tomb, forget it, I'm going in. And he saw, he, he went there as well, and he saw the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Basically, the picture we get is that the, the grave clothes that probably weighed 50 to 100 pounds because of all the spices and things that were there to preserve the body was literally like a chrysalis, like the cocoon that wraps a moth And once the moth is gone, it just kind of collapses in on itself, but it's still in position, which indicates that this was not a tomb that had been robbed or grave robbed. Okay, if grave robbers had gone in there, they would have been torn up the the linens and all that kind of stuff. It would have been scattered everywhere. Furthermore, that wouldn't explain why the Roman guards who were guarding the tomb would be gone because it was their life on the line if they were not protecting the body. But they see the cloths lying there just as they had been. Verse 8. Finally, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, just in case you forgot, also went inside. He saw and he believed. Now, this is not suggesting that he believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Because at this point, they still don't even realize that Jesus has risen from the dead. Instead, he believes that the tomb is empty. He believes Mary Magdalene's word. Probably up to that point, they really doubted. It's like, what are you talking about, girl? Verse 9, because they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Quite often we find with the disciples that when they are going through the midst of it, they have absolutely no clue what's going on. But in hindsight, as they begin to look at the Old Testament, they begin to see prophecy after prophecy that would point towards these things. One prophecy in particular that is fulfilled from the Old Testament is a prophecy found in Psalm 16 where David, talking about the Holy One of God, says, listen, you will not abandon me to the grave. You will not allow your Holy One to see decay. Now, David was originally talking about himself, but prophetically, this points directly to Jesus. 
Because by day four, a body began to decay. Day three, no decay yet. So this was a prophetic utterance. And it's one that twice in the book of Acts is pointed towards. Actually, they refer to Psalm 16 two times saying this was a direct fulfillment of that psalm. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him. And Jesus replied, Mary. She turned towards him and she recognized him. She cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then Jesus said, Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God. And to your God. Now, in the English, we might read that and we might go, wow, it kind of seems like Jesus is a little standoffish, right? Kind of like some of those old Renaissance paintings where Jesus, there's literally a Renaissance painting that I found where Jesus is almost like doing the, the Heisman, like almost stiff arming Mary, like, don't hold on to me, girl, leave me alone. But he's not being standoffish here. What's going on is that Jesus recognizes that Mary's expectation is that this is now going to be a return back to the relationship they had. That Oh, now that you're alive, oh my goodness, everything is going to return to how it was before him getting arrested and crucified. We get you back, Jesus, you're here for good. And Jesus realizes, I'm not here for good. In fact, I'm returning to my Father. I'm here for just a short time. In my place is going to come the Holy Spirit, who will be God with you. In fact, not just God with you like I was with you alongside of you, but God within you which is far better than what it's been. But things are going to change. And so he says, Mary, don't hold on to me. Instead, go and tell my brothers, my friends, that I am returning to my God and their God, to my father and their father. And so sure enough, Mary does that. Mary, verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said all these things to her, which is interesting because in this culture, women, women were not allowed to actually uh, be a witness in a court of law. This is a very patriarchal society and they would not accept a woman's testimony about anything in a court of law. And yet it is a woman who is the very first witness to the risen Lord. It is a woman who is the very first person who gets to see Jesus risen from the dead and ultimately gets to go and declare it to her brothers and sisters. I've seen Jesus. He's alive. This is a huge deal. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. So we have, we have a picture now of that evening. Mary had gone early in the morning. It's now evening of the same day. The disciples are huddled in a little room. The door is locked because they're afraid that the same people who had just clamored for the death of their rabbi will come after them next. They're terrified. Now, 
they've also been going throughout the day with this weird statement from Mary that Jesus is alive. And I know, no doubt, part of them wanted to believe, and another part of them are going, I don't know, people don't just come back from the dead. I, I would love to believe that, but consider the source. I mean, Mary, you did kind of have seven demons taken out. I mean, I, I want to believe, but I don't know. And so they're huddled there for fear of retribution from the rest of the Jews. And then Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace to you. And in that moment, any doubt that they had evaporated in the warm light of his presence. And after he said, Peace to you, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Not necessarily when Mary told them because they were confused. They were overjoyed when they saw him face to face. And suddenly they believe. And then again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. In the same way that I have been God's representative, going around and sharing the good news with other people. So now you now are going to be my ambassadors. You are going to go around sharing the gospel message with other people praying for them you get to be my representative but he recognized that they were not going to be able to do it by their own strength they needed the holy spirit they needed god with them and in them and so verse 22 and with that he breathed on them and he said receive the holy spirit if you forgive anyone's sins their sins are forgiven if you don't forgive them they're not forgiven In a lot of ways, this is simply if you share the gospel message and they believe, then they will be forgiven. If if you don't share it, if you keep it back, then they will have no way to be forgiven. But something that really confuses me about that statement and about what Jesus does here is that I thought that the Holy Spirit was given some 49 days later on the day of Pentecost. At least that's what Acts chapter 2 suggests is that the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. They're still in this little room. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes on them in power, and there's tongues of flames over their heads. And they are so moved by the Holy Spirit's presence that they literally go out into the streets and begin to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. They begin to proclaim that Jesus has risen from the dead, that He is God in human flesh, and that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And they do so in other languages in the languages of all the people gathered in the city at that time, and that over 3,000 people placed their faith in Jesus on that day. That's the beginning of the apostolic movement. And I was under the impression that that's when the Holy Spirit was given. So at first, I really kind of wrestled with, well, what's going on here? It seems like there's some discrepancy, that these two things seem to be mutually exclusive. But when you actually look at what's going on, they're not mutually exclusive in any, in any way, shape, or form because, in fact, two different things, two different impartations are being given. In this section of John, here at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus recognizes that he's about to go and be with the Father. He's about to leave them, and he's promised them in John chapter 16, or was it John chapter 14, he promised them, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going to go be with the Father, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you another counselor, another comforter, another advocate to be with you, just as I have been with you. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He promised. And so right now, as he's about to go and be with the Father, he breathes the Holy Spirit into them as an impartation of God's presence residing within them. Later on, some 49 days later, 
the Holy Spirit comes upon them to now inaugurate and initiate the apostolic movement. Now they are suddenly moved so powerfully by the Holy Spirit's presence in them that they go out and begin to, to share the good news without fear of the repercussions. Let's not forget, these are the same people that have been huddled in a, in a room for fear that they're going to get arrested in the very same city that just two months prior had been clamoring for the death of their rabbi. It's a big deal. So the Holy Spirit's presence in their lives had a powerful impact. And so in no way are these two impartations of the Holy Spirit here in the room on the day when they see Jesus for the first time, and then about a month and a half, some 49 days later on the day of Pentecost, they're not mutually exclusive. They're simply different impartations of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, all of John's gospel, from the very beginning, from chapter 1, when John the Baptist said, hey, listen, I knew that Jesus was the one. My goodness. I knew that Jesus was the one because... God told me that the one that I saw the Holy Spirit rest upon would be the very same one that would baptize in the Holy Spirit. Later on, during the the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus gets up and says, listen, if you come to me, then streams of living water will flow from you. And John explains the living water is actually the Holy Spirit that was not given yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And now... Jesus has been glorified. He has been raised up on the cross and he single-handedly took our sins upon him, fulfilling God's will. Now that he's been glorified, now it's time for the Holy Spirit to be given. And so at the end of John's gospel, we see Jesus anointing the disciples to now go out and be his representatives, to be his ambassadors for the good news. But one of the disciples isn't in that room, a guy named Thomas. And so we read in verse 24, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord! And Thomas is about as skeptical as I'm sure the other disciples had been when Mary had shared the good news with them. He said, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my fingers where the nails were and I put my hand into his side where the spear pierced him, I'm not going to believe. Until I see him with my own eyes, I just can't let my heart accept that fact. Well, a week later, he gets his opportunity because the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time. And that although the doors were locked, the doors are still locked, just in case the Jews get an idea of coming after them, Jesus came and stood amongst them. And he said, peace be with you. And then he looks straight at Thomas and goes, Thomas, come here. Go ahead and touch the nail marks. You want to put your fingers on my side? Go ahead. Stop doubting and believe, Thomas. And I love Thomas's response because in that moment, all skepticism vanishes. And he goes, my Lord and my God, because in that moment he realizes who Jesus is. Jesus is not only his rabbi, but he is divine. He is God in human flesh. And as such, he is worthy to be the Lord of his life. And so he declares his faith in that moment. Jesus has an interesting response in verse 29. Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And in that moment, Jesus is actually talking about every single one of us in this room that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ because we have heard the good news and believed it. Every single person throughout history who was not an eyewitness to the risen Jesus and yet believe the testimony of those who had seen him 
and chose to call him not only Savior, but Lord. He said, blessed are they who have not seen and yet believed. Which then makes me think, well, well, does that mean that our faith has to be blind? Does that mean that we should not be like the Bereans who, when Paul was going and sharing the good news with people, didn't just take it, they didn't just take his word for it, but they actually went and began to study the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying lined up with scripture. Does that mean that we should not actually seek to corroborate the gospel message with history? I would suggest that that is not the case. That is not at all what Jesus is suggesting because he calls us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your what? All your mind. And part of loving him is understanding, is, is, a, is to seek to be able to found our faith on something solid. And it, I won't even go with that. Just look at the next two verses, the last two verses of this chapter. Look what John says here in verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. In other words, John is saying, I have given you all of these examples from his life of radical, miraculous things that he did so that you can found your faith upon the reality of what he did, so that you can actually know that he was who he claimed to be. John gives us evidence that we can found our faith upon. And I would suggest that as Christ followers, it is okay to ask questions. I love the fact that we serve a God who's big enough to handle our full range of emotions. I love the book of Psalms because it's, it's the cries of a guy. Most of, most of the Psalms are written by David or a good portion of them. This is a man who is called a man after God's own heart. And so many of them are cries of, God, why are you so far from me? Where are you? Just laments. God can handle our full range of emotions and God is big enough to handle our questions. Furthermore, there's a guy named George Ladd who some years ago wrote a book about whether or not Jesus was who he claimed to be. And one of the quotes I love from this book, he said, Christianity is not just a code for living or a philosophy of religion. It is rooted in real events of history. To some people, this is scandalous because it means that the truth of Christianity is inexplicably bound up with the truth of cert certain historical facts. And if those facts should be disproved, then Christianity would be false. This, however, is what makes Christianity unique. Because unlike other world religions, modern man has a means of actually verifying Christianity's truth by historical evidence. So the question is, Can we believe this? The question is, does this, and particularly the four Gospels that speak of Jesus' life, do these Gospels hold up to the scrutiny of history? Now, a couple, about a decade ago, there was this major uh, debate between a, a Christian theologian and an atheist. And during that thing, they were really trying to argue whether or not Jesus Christ was God. And ultimately, that debate zeroed in on perhaps the single greatest question about Jesus. 
Because if we boiled all of the questions we might have about his life down, there's probably one moment in all of them that is the greatest question mark. And that is, did Jesus Christ actually rise from the dead? The Apostle Paul recognized the gravity of that question. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he states this in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. He goes on in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Paul recognized that if Jesus Christ didn't actually rise from the dead, then the whole rest of the gospel message basically begins to fall apart. It, it, at the very least, casts everything else into question. So the question I want to wrestle with with the, the remainder of our time this morning is what sort of historical evidence do we have, both from Scripture, but also outside of Scripture, that we can point to and say, this is evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and therefore was who he claimed to be, was who his disciples claimed him to be. I have four in particular. I have lots of books, lots of articles have been written on this. If you want further reading on this, I'd be happy to give you names and, and, and other places. But here are four pieces of evidence that support that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. The first piece of evidence is all of the embarrassing personal details that are included in the Gospels. Because those embarrassing details give it a, a sense of credibility. If I were going to write a story in which I'm one of the main characters and I was making it up, you better believe I'm casting myself in the very best light. I'll probably refer to myself as the one whom Jesus loved or something like that. (laughs) But these are the kind of details that I mean. One, we we have John talking about a foot race between himself and Peter. Okay? We have the fact that once they get there and see the empty tomb, they're confused because they, even though Jesus had warned them time and again, listen, guys, I'm going, but I'm coming back, they still didn't get it. The fact that they are his disciples, and yet they did not understand, cast them in a negative light. And yet they include that because it rings more. It, 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 is, it has the ring of authenticity. Probably the biggest detail in John's gospel that we point to and go, man, if you we were writing this in a day and age when people would not accept a, a, a woman's testimony in the court of law, the last thing you're going to choose to do is have a woman be the first person to see Jesus and come and tell everybody. But that is exactly what happened, which gives it again an air of authenticity. Now, is that irreparable, you know, irrefutable proof? Absolutely not. But it's one piece of evidence that lends credibility to these gospel accounts. The second question, the second piece of evidence is the enormous mountain of evidence that the tomb was actually empty. We don't have a single group of people around Jesus' time arguing that the tomb was not empty. Not only Jesus' disciples, but also people who were opposed to Jesus being the Son of God admit that the tomb was empty. We have, in Matthew chapter 28, we actually have a group of Jews who are trying to argue that the disciples must have come and stolen the body because that's the only explanation we have for the empty tomb, which suggests that the tomb was actually empty because they wouldn't try to make up those arguments if it was not. 
Furthermore, think about this for a moment. You have the disciples some 50 days after Jesus is crucified and killed going around the very same city, Jerusalem, that had just clamored for his death, proclaiming that Jesus is risen from the dead, which would be very difficult if Jesus' body was still in the tomb, wouldn't it? It'd be a little awkward because all they would have to do is produce the body and that's the end of it. Can we throw up that other quote here for a second? The resurrection could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. But we don't have to just take the Bible's word for it. Because there's a whole bunch of extra-biblical evidence that the tomb was empty. A guy named Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, admitted that the tomb was empty. Furthermore, in the the 5th century, there is a, a... compilation of Jewish rabbinic writing called the Toledeth Jehu. Basically, it's translated the life of Jesus, talking about this guy Jesus who was traveling around and who was believed to be the Messiah, and they admit that the tomb was empty. Now, this is what historians refer to as positive evidence from a hostile source. Think about this for a second. If we just had the, the elections, right? And if we had a Republican candidate talking about another Republican candidate saying, hey, he's a great guy, I believe in him, you're going to be a little bit skeptical because they're in cahoots. But if you have a Republican candidate talking about a positive attribute of his Democratic opponent, chances are you're going to take that uh, as a little bit more factual because there's no way that a candidate is going to support or encourage something that's positive that actually goes against their own Desires. Does that make sense? So the fact that we have opponents of the resurrected Jesus admitting that the tomb is empty is very solid proof that the tomb was empty. But of course, that then begs the question, well, how is the tomb empty? Some people have suggested, well, the Romans stole the body. You know, they were the ones who were guarding it. But if that's the case, now all of a sudden the disciples start sharing testimony about Jesus being risen. All they have to do is present the body, and that's the end of that conversation. Well, then the most obvious argument, other than Jesus being risen from the dead, is that the disciples stole the body. We're going to touch on that in just a second. Let's go to the third piece of evidence for the fact that that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And the third piece of evidence is the immense amount of eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. Because if you were going to steal a body and then suggest that he actually rose from the dead, you were going to fabricate a lie... You would want to keep the amount of eyewitnesses, the amount of people who are in on it, to the very bare minimum. But we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the same passage that we were just at a few minutes ago. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul makes this declaration. This is one of the clearest articulations of the gospel I find in Scripture. He says, For what I have received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve, the disciples, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some of them have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother, and then to all of the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me, as one who was abnormally born, because Paul never actually saw Jesus in the flesh in his lifetime. He saw Jesus as he was on his way to Damascus in order to persecute the church. 
Jesus confronted him. And in that moment, he went from an opponent of the gospel to a proponent of the gospel. Now, some of us might argue, well, wait a minute. Okay, yeah, so over 500 people supposedly saw Jesus, right? Okay, that's huge. That's a lot of people, especially because Paul says they're still alive at at the time of writing this. If you were going to try to make up a lie and pass it off as truth, you're either going to keep a very small group of people that all have the same answer if they're questioned on it, or you're going to wait till all of the supposed eyewitnesses have died off and then write it. Because then nobody can actually go and ask them, what did you see? The fact that there are a whole bunch of eyewitnesses to corroborate or to alter the testimony that Paul and all of the gospel writers have given is strong evidence. But a skeptic might say, well, wait a minute. They were all believers in the first place, right? They, they were all already disciples of Jesus, so of course they're all going to agree that he rose from the dead. So that, that argument kind of falls apart, right? Except, think about for a moment, Paul. We know him at the beginning as Saul of Tarsus because he more than anyone was not a disciple of Jesus Christ. When Jesus had died and supposedly rose from the dead, he was one of the most outspoken opponents of the gospel. As people were beginning to go around and share the good news, he was the one who was arresting people and throwing them into jail. He was the one who was standing there as the very first Christian martyr, a guy named Stephen, was stoned to death, was killed for his declaration of his trust in Jesus Christ. Paul guy named Saul at the time, his name would later be changed to Paul, was the very first major opponent of the gospel message after Jesus' resurrection. And yet, as we've seen, after the road to Damascus encounter where Jesus confronted him, he goes from opponent to proponent of the gospel. He became one of the most outspoken people declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that is a huge Mark against those who would say, well, wait a minute, it's only Jesus' disciples that claim to see him. Paul was never a disciple of Jesus Christ before his crucifixion. It was only after. So, embarrassing evidence in the Gospels is one piece of evidence. The, The fact that the tomb is empty and that there's a ton of historical data to support that fact. Thirdly, the immense amount of eyewitnesses to the risen Lord, most of whom are still alive at the time of the writing of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. And finally, and for me, this is the most powerful piece of evidence that we have. Finally is the impact that the risen Jesus had on his disciples. Think about this for a moment. Jesus' disciples were not the most courageous of people, at least at the time of his death. When Jesus is arrested, they scattered. Only a couple of them actually went to the cross to see Jesus be crucified. We see one of the disciples, one of Jesus' inner circle, a guy named Peter, actually deny even knowing Jesus, not once, but three times, before he's even dead. Finally, we see the disciples after the crucifixion hiding in a room for fear that the Jews are going to come after them next. And not two months later, These same disciples who supposedly saw the risen Lord go from terrified victims to outspoken martyrs. I want you to understand the word witness is the same word as martyr in Greek. And most of them became outspoken martyrs. They 
unabashedly began to declare that Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God and that he is worthy to be trusted not only as Savior, but as Lord. They began doing it in the very same city that just a couple of months before had been clamoring for the death of Jesus. In the same city that they'd been hiding for almost two months for fear of retribution from the Jews, and they began declaring the good news unabashedly. At one of the most packed times of the year. But they don't stop there. They then go on to the greater Judean region. They go on to Samaria. They go to the ends of the earth proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. They devote their lives to this. But a skeptic might say, well, wait a minute. I mean, they obviously had selfish motives in this. They were looking somehow to get something out of it. Maybe, it's, maybe it was going to help them socially. Maybe it was going to get them a position of power. Maybe they were going to financially benefit from this whole thing. But history does not support that argument. Because history shows us that the wage that the disciples actually pulled from all of their efforts of sharing the gospel was first, they were ostracized by their Jewish family and friends. Many of them were imprisoned for speaking out. And yet even after they were imprisoned and they got out, they went right back to doing it. They were beaten. They were tortured. They were stoned to death. They were thrown to lions. They were crucified. We know that of Jesus' original 12 disciples, only one of them made it to old age and ultimately died of old age. And that's John, the, the author of this gospel. But even he... Even he was basically kicked out and he he was um, exiled to an island because he would not shut up about his faith. I don't know about you, but if I made something up, I probably wouldn't devote my whole life to preserving that lie, but I definitely would not die to preserve that lie. Now, maybe one of the disciples might have been willing to, but all of them, every single one of them would be willing to sacrifice everything. These guys who have shown themselves to be terrified, who have even put this evidence of, I denied my Lord three times, and it's in there, irrefutably written down for all of posterity to see. These were not courageous men, and yet they died courageously, proclaiming their faith that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And that, for me, is the most powerful piece of evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. More than all of the other stuff is the transformed lives of his disciples. And so, for us this morning, we are left with a mound of evidence. And I have just scratched the surface. There's so much more we could talk about, but those are just a few of the pieces of evidence that point to the fact that Jesus truly did rise from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God. And we have a choice before us. Do we reject this evidence and go, it doesn't change anything in my heart. I don't believe it at all. And if that's the case, then fine. I would just simply ask you to answer a couple of things, such as, how do you explain the empty tomb? And how do you explain the transformed lives of not just one disciple, but all of the disciples? If you choose to reject this evidence, I, just would, I would ask for you to honestly try to answer those questions. 
But if you do recognize that, you know what, the evidence, the most obvious answer to this is Jesus actually rose from the dead, as crazy as that sounds, then we are suddenly left with a different question. How are you going to respond to that? Do we kind of pay it lip service and and kind of move on because we're not really ready to relinquish control of our lives? We're not really done being the captain of our own ship? Or do we do as Thomas did when he was confronted with Jesus in the flesh? (laughs) And, and, And because we recognize that he is God, we also recognize that he is worthy to be Lord of our lives. That, for me, is where I land. And if there's anybody else in here this morning who's just kind of like, you know what, I, I, the evidence points there. The invitation then is to begin a relationship with him and to truly get to know him more. Because it's, it's one thing to know about God. It's one thing to intellectually know that Jesus is God. It's yet another thing to actually experience Jesus in our lives. To allow him to be the Lord of our lives. I'm going on some 25 years of walking with Jesus. And it's not always been easy. But my life is different because I have chosen to allow him to be the Lord for good portions of that. Sometimes I've tried to relinquish, or I've tried to kind of take back control. It went really well for me. Um, But in relinquishing control of my life, I have seen that Jesus truly is worthy to be called Lord, worthy to be allowed to be Lord. And so if you are one of those that are kind of like, you know what, I've heard it before, but I am willing and I'm ready to give my life to him, then it simply begins. It begins with us admitting that we are sinners and that we actually need him to come into our lives. It it begins with us believing that he can take our sins, has taken our sins on the cross and paid for them, and then confessing with our lips that Jesus is Lord. So what I want to do right now is the the band is going to come forward and we're going to close, is I'm going to pray a prayer. There's nothing magical about this prayer. It is simply a, a cry of dependence. And much like a wedding ceremony isn't the end of being married, it is simply the beginning, that's what this is. A declaration of Jesus, I want you in my life. So if you close your eyes with me, and if what I'm about to pray echoes the cry of your heart, then I invite you to pray it along with me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. And God, thank you for raising Jesus from the dead declaring once and for all that sin and death have had their back broken by you. That you are God and they are not. And Jesus, thank you that you came to save us from sin. But we want you to be more than just our Savior. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to come into my life and begin to clean house. I don't fully know all that it entails, but I do know that I'm tired of doing this on my own.
Amen. There's nothing magical about that prayer. It is simply a declaration that for the rest of my life, I want to give my heart over to Jesus. And now comes the really challenging part. And that is being willing to take that first step and actually submit your life today. This is what I love, though. Just as we saw Jesus breathing on his disciples and imparting them to them the Holy Spirit because he recognized that they would never be his representatives, never represent his heart well by their own strength, we too are entrusted with the Holy Spirit when we give our heart to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit begins to work inside of us to cleanse us, to clean house, if we will allow Him to do so. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, I want to challenge you to tell somebody. Don't keep that a secret. If for no other reason that when you say yes to Jesus, you place a target on your back. The enemy does not like to relinquish what he considers to be his property. And don't forget that we live in enemy-occupied territory. Jesus may be God. And we know that he will ultimately win this battle, but there is still a battle that wages around us, and the enemy does not like to relinquish territory that he considers to be his. So if you have said yes to Jesus, you desperately need to have others around you walking with you. People that you can ask those tough questions with. I make myself available, but I know that there are also others in here who would love the opportunity to journey with you. Let me just pray one last time and we're going to go into a time of response and we are going to, to take our offering. Father, I thank you. I thank you for dying for us. Jesus, thank you for giving your life. Thank you for taking our sins upon you so that although we have fallen short of your perfect holiness, when you look at us, you don't see our sin. You see your kids washed in the blood of your son. And you call us sons and daughters. We love that and we thank you for that. Father, would you protect us? If there are any in here this morning who have made that declaration and invited you to be Lord, would you protect them and surround them with your kids to walk with and encourage them as their faith continues to grow? And I thank you, God, that you have allowed, that you're a big enough God to handle our full range of emotions. You're big enough to handle our questions. We thank you for that. And so now as we go into a time of response, and one of the ways we're going to respond is through our, our, our offering. Maybe one of the ways that we respond is through um, a prayer that we just want to write down on a connection card and toss in that basket. However we respond right now, God, we declare that you are God and we are not. And we confess that we need you to have your way with us, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.